We're going to get started um, teaching lesson in Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you want to, most of the scriptures I think are on the handout, but if you want to turn whatever version you're in, that, this is King, uh, New King James on the handout. We're going to talk about the demoniac of Gadara. And I put all three, par- all three passages are parallel. Is that okay? Sounds like it's uh, echoing to me. We're good? All right. Um, and if you want to, there's some discrepancies in some, or parent discrepancies. I address those. They'll be in the notes on the website. I'm not going to talk about those this morning. Got a lot to talk about. And um, so if you want to read some more about some of the stuff, you can go on the, uh, and look at the website and uh, see the rest of the notes. Uh, let me lay the, the groundwork here. We've got this wonderful map up on the board. The big blue thing in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. Now, now, don't criticize. I didn't draw that. We have expert artists over here. So, Up at the top where you see Capernaum, that whole area up north of Galilee is where 75% of Jesus' time and miracles took place. The other almost to 100% all down through the left side of Galilee, down through Jerusalem. That's where everything happened. Majority of the time spent up north, but all down through the rest. Gadara was the capital city of the Decapolis, Romans name for ten cities out in this region. It was the largest. This is where we're going today. This is what's going to be happening. So when they go from somewhere over in here across the, across the Sea of Galilee, they're just going to right here. Okay? So I want you to get that picture in your mind. Because what has happened up to the point we come to Mark chapter 5, Jesus has been teaching, lots of parables have been going on, miracles have been happening, and he, he tells his disciples, send the multitudes away, let's go to the other side. So they go from around Capernaum to the little dot over on the other side. Okay? What happens is they get into the boat, and immediately Jesus goes to sleep. And as they're going that little distance across the water, and it's not very far, most of the time, from the widest section across, 90, 95, 98% of the time, you can see all the way across that. It's not that far. It's not that huge a sea. It's, it's pretty small by comparison. So what they're doing is not a lot. It's not very far. And, this, and what is happening is he's going over to this area, and, I, and we're going to see a spiritual battle that unfolds into our world, this physical world that we live in. And it starts from the moment they leave. Um, There's no doubt in my mind that the storm that takes place was was thrown together uh, by Satan and his demons. Here's the the, um, picture. Jesus has been been here around uh, a year or so. A lot of things are going on. Satan's watching him. He's here on earth. He's watching every opportunity. Jesus is exhausted. The men are going across. In Mark chapter 4, it says there were many little ships following him. We get this picture of just Jesus and his disciples going across and the storm attacks them. There are other people involved here. And so they're going across and this big storm erupts. Jesus is asleep. These experienced fishermen, not very far from shore, they can't handle it. They're going under. 
and they wake Jesus. And it says he rebukes the wind and the sea. It uses a very strong word. He doesn't, not from the other story that we hear about, it says, he says, peace be still. Now this is a strong rebuke. And everything calms down. And from this point on, I think the disciples realize they're totally in over their heads. What's going on? This whole spiritual battle that takes place that we're going to read about from this point, because this is the last word you see, and they're just astounded at the power and authority of Jesus. And all the way back over to the area where we're going, near the tombs, till they go all the way back across Galilee, you never see from any of the Gospels a single word said by any of the disciples. Nothing printed. We come to Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. Excuse me. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So they go over to this area, and you can go today. There's a huge area of of tombs uh, through this through this little area right here. And that's one of the sites some of the tour places go because they want to see what happened here. And right near there, there's a really steep, the only place you can find a really steep um, um, slope and then a drop-off like a cliff. And um, this is where most experts will agree this took place. And so they go over to the shore and it says immediately this demoniac jumps out at him running at him and uh, um, and and so it's the next the next phase of this attack it starts right here um, several things um, the, says he's crying crying out I think that's uh, twofold the demons crying out him crying out from torment but what I want to make a quick note of is is the cutting of himself um, I think yeah I think, again, this is twofold. I think the man was probably so tormented, he probably wanted to die. And the demons wouldn't let him. He hated it. He couldn't stand what was going on. But, but he, was, he was just totally loss of control. But I think that even more is the demons were probably cutting him, making him cut himself. See, in Genesis 127, Scripture says that we were all created in the image of God the very one that these demons hate and have rebelled against. And he reminds them of him. Demons use humans all the time. But it's not because they want to have this willing, hey, let's have a partnership. They, don't ha- they hate us. Just as much as they hate God because we remind them of him. In 1 Corinthians 11.27, says not only are we the image of God, we are the glory of God. And so they wanted to make him so unrecognizable that it would remove that image from their minds. So this guy's in torment, and that's where they show up. And this guy runs out at him. And we come to verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, 
He ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. i got to bring a little Middle Eastern culture in here to help you understand. In our culture, evident from television, you got tons of... of um, um, lawyer shows, tons of cop shows, and the one thing that's always important in all these shows is the timeline. And when we read a story, we want to know the timeline. We follow what's going on. And the reason a lot of people struggle in our culture to even read the Bible is because it's not written in a timeline. It's all over the place. In Middle Eastern culture, timeline's not that important. The message is important. The purpose of the message is important. The audience you're trying to reach is important. So in these verses, I think this really spells it out because these verses aren't, this happened, dun, 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 dun. Okay? It says, when he saw him, in verse 6, it says, when he saw Jesus, the demoniac saw Jesus from afar, he ran towards him. In verse 2, it says, as soon as he got out of the boat, immediately he was there. So he's running down this this. Um, from the area from the tombs, which is away from the water, towards Jesus until he gets there, and this thing starts. I think then it jumps to verse 8, and in verse 8, it gives a past tense, and it tells you literally, verse 7 happened because of verse 8. Because it says in verse 8, for or because, these things happened in verse 7, because he said to him, come out of the man. So here this demoniac, you got to get the picture. You have this he starts out, and your timeline is, he starts out with this frantic run. You got this guy that's been living in, in, amongst tombs. Hair disastrous, filthy, stinky, naked, very strong, okay? And he starts running at Jesus and the disciples. You can see them, disciples pulling out the boat. Jesus steps out, disciples step back in the boat. <laughs> And this guy comes running, ah! And Jesus says, come out. And he stops. So Jesus makes a firm command, and that kind of halts him for a second. Then you have the failed faint. In verse 7, it uses the term. It says, um, and he cried out with a loud voice, what have I to do with you? This is at least eight times in Scripture this exact phrase is used. Um, maybe more, uh, but I, I found at least eight times, okay? It's a phrase that basically means, no, I, I don't want to. Do I have to? See like a little kid just whining, oh, I don't want to do this, you know. Are you going to make me do this? And the command just stops them, and they're like, you know, they're, they're trying to hold back a little bit and say, you know, I, I don't want to make this, this next step. I, I don't want to leave this guy. So you have this failed faint, and then they come back with a counterattack, a foolish counterattack, where they, it says, now most of us wouldn't catch this, but it says, Jesus, son of the most high God. You think they were just, oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Now, they're not saying it as you and I might say it. In Middle Eastern culture, again, Using someone's name in an an attack, in a fight, in an argument 
is a sign of power. And they're trying to take the name of Jesus and use it against him and saying, I know who you are. You are Jesus, son of the most high God. So they, so they have this counterattack that they're trying to use them in this fight that's going on. Pretty foolish counterattack. Then you have the forced surrender. We move back to verse 6. And verse 6 says at the very end of it, he worshipped him, the demoniac. That word worshipped means to forcibly fall on your knees and put your, head to your for, to the, put your forehead to the ground. I don't think they were doing this because they wanted to. We see that. We say they ran and they worshipped him. We kind of miss, miss that. that. That word is, is they're literally just falling straight to the ground and putting their face to the ground. And I think the very reason they did that was because Jesus, son of the uh, most high God. Philippians 2.10 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. I think they were forced to the ground and they recognized, here's where all of this stuff, these, these three verses, everything that happened probably happened in a matter of seconds. Probably didn't, and I'm certain it didn't happen in the timeline that we're laid out here. The final thing here is this fearful plea. They start to realize we may, be, we, we may not win this battle. Um, and they start to make a plea. They say, please, don't torment us. I beg of you. It's a strong word for, for pleading, for begging. Please don't, don't send us to torment. Now, I um, like to put ourselves in the same place, and sometimes what would we do? To me, I would think, God, you know, they're down on their face, and you, know, you just sort of, all right, I got you now. You know, they're pleading, no, leniency. Give us, give us leniency. Don't, don't, don't torment us. Now, why would Jesus torment them? See, they know their future. They fear their future. They know the ultimate result. It doesn't keep them from fighting. They're beaten. It seems foolish for them to keep trying to fight. But they keep fighting. And they make this plea because they know their future. And they know what it is. See, we know our future. And it's a glorious future. They know theirs and they fear it. And there are all those around us they have no clue what their future is. And their fear ought to inspire us to say, that's the same fate. Matthew 25, 41. There's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the same fate for all those that reject Christ. And it ought to move us to fear. It ought to move us to action. We come to verse 9. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. So we have this, what I call the faltering rebellion. Remember, this man is on the ground, his face planted in the dirt, and Jesus says, What is your name? Name is power, right? 
they're still refusing to answer because legion is not a name. It's a number. Okay? In this case, at the time of Augustine as emperor, uh, legions changed in size through the emperors. At this time, it would be 6,826. And if I turned and I went to Jim here and I said, what is your name? And he says, you know, 6,826. They're still, as foolish as it is, knowing they've lost, they're still trying to play this game of, of resistance, of not wanting to cooperate. Verse 10. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding, feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine, and there were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. The uh, demons are sitting there, and he's told them to come out, and it's become apparently obvious we've lost. This is it. So, so they're looking for an out. They, they don't want to go to the place prepared for them. And they're like, oh, pigs. You hate pigs. You, you told your people, stay away from the pigs. You know, they're, they're a bad thing. You could send us to the pigs. Now, to me... I've always read this and thought, they're asking him for something, he just grants it? They're the enemy, you know? Why? Why would he do that? I think he was trying to make a statement. This whole area on the east side, other than the big cities, was populated mostly by Jewish people. In the area where they're at, the little dot on the right side, their primary industry, 2,000 pigs. It's a lot of pigs. Pig farming. Jewish people. Pig farming. This, was, this wasn't just the outskirts of society. This was beyond the outskirts of society. Because Jewish people, this, this was the ultimate in rebellion against God. To have anything to do with pigs. You remember the story of the prodigal son? It comes all the way to the point of living and eating with the pigs. This is the idea of total rebellion. These people weren't the devout of the Jews in this area. Throughout the region. Okay? I think Jesus was trying to make a statement and trying to convict them. And I really think they got the message. We'll follow, follow that along. Um, there are several things that I think this whole story is trying to, to, to walk us through, and we get some glimpses of who Jesus is. And one of those, Jesus is all powerful. I was talking to Jim just before this. This, this. this whole thing of what these demons do is like a little three-year-old. You tell him to do something, and first he starts throwing things. And they, they, they threw the seas and the winds against him. And then they, they, they want to start swinging. They want to start being physical, uh, violent. And, and when the demons come running at them, and they want to do... Um, third, they, they tried to use the power of his name, started calling him, started calling him names. Then they, then they refuse. He, he gives them command, 
They refused to do it. Verse 7. Verse 9, he tells them again, he says something. They refuse to answer his question. It's like a little three-year-old rebelling against their parent. And they're doing all these things. And it's showing us, see, what is happening is Satan and his demons, they're doing all the fighting. But Jesus is doing all the winning. He just says, come out. He says, what's your name? Go ahead, go to the pigs. And they're throwing everything they got against them. Jesus is always all-powerful. He is always in control. And sometimes we forget that. Second thing, Jesus is loving. 2 Peter 3.9, first part of it says Jesus is not that he is not willing that any should perish. All that he did on the west side of the Galilee of the Jordan, all that time that Jesus spent, he was going out of his way because there were one or two men that needed him. And he went out of his way to reach somebody and to emulate that. We ought to be doing the same. Um, sometimes we don't, most of the time we shouldn't have to go out of our way. But we don't want to take that, that, uh, that risk. Thirdly, Jesus is just. I talked about these Jews that lived in this area. I think more than the story of the demons versus Jesus, more of the story of the salvation of the men was these people that lived in this region. Jesus was trying to reach them. Jesus was trying to say, he's been not that far away. People from a whole lot farther than, than Capernaum to this area of the tombs traveled to see what Jesus was doing. They've heard of who he was. And he's trying to get their attention. They didn't go looking for him. But he came looking for them. And that's the story of each of us. He came looking for us. And he found us. Praise the Lord. His, um, see, I, uh, again, the reason I said he is just, because his justice demands judgment. And he's passing judgment. He could have sent these demons away. He could have sent these demons and said, you, all you people reject me? Here, you take the demons. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to get them, uh, convict them. And so he sends it to make a statement into these pigs that they should not have in the first place. Because his law stated specifically, don't do this. And they knew it. The second part of 2 Peter 3.9 says, after it says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wanted them to accept it. That's what he was looking for. See, his justice demanded judgment. But his grace abounded. And he said, I want you to, hear, you to see who I am. I want you to know who I am. Verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it to the city and in the, um, and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them 
how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about to swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. <clears throat> now we know from verses 11, 14, and 16 that there were some people not only near, but they saw what was going on. You read those verses. They saw what was going on. They were conducting their living next to these, these tombs that were filled with demons. That didn't seem to bother them. Nearby is a village. People were living near these tombs where they were demon-possessed. And that didn't seem to bother them. They became comfortable with what was, what was there. At first they tried to do something about it, said, well, we can't, we can't seem to do anything about it. We'll just tolerate it. And that toleration became, okay, we're comfortable with it. We'll just live. We'll live our lives. They can live theirs. It's not a problem. So these guys lose the pigs, and they, want, and they go and tell everybody else. And the reason they went and told everybody else, 2,000 pigs. I mean, we can tolerate all kinds of wickedness around us. But then you start messing with this, gloves come off. We take this serious, don't we? They did. This 2,000 pigs is going to affect a lot more people. When these people all showed up, said they were afraid. That word is so strong, means that they, they are so afraid, they're ready to run in fear. The demons are gone. Here's a man sitting down with clothing on for the first time, calmly talking, and they're afraid and ready to run away. I think the conviction sets in. Because as long as this man right here is around, I don't have to worry about what God's telling me to do because I'm better than him, right? Right? <laughs> they had an easy and convenient excuse. I don't need to do anything. I'm, I'm so much better than those guys. We do that all the time. We probably do it in church services. I've done it. I've been listening to a message. It was great. And the thought comes to mind, boy, I wish Josh could hear this because he needs this message. <laughs> I'll, oh, I'll even get spiritual about it. God, let Josh hear this message, please, because this, really, this would really help him. Haven't you all done that? Every once in a while, though, sorry, Jim, I'm going to use this for a second. Every once in a while, we'll be sitting there, and that little voice gets in. It says, well, what about you? Has anybody else heard that? Well, we get all uncomfortable, don't we? Uh, uh, that's when the excuses come. I, I can't, you know. That, you're asking too much. I, I just can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. What about him? He's worse than me. Certainly you need to be talking to him, not me. When he gets his life straight, I'll get my life straight. Or the really spiritual one, but God, you've blessed me. And things are really going well. And I'm comfortable here. 
Certainly you're not asking me to change. Change makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I think these people felt that conviction. And rather than yield and do something about it, they asked the conviction to leave. They said, Jesus, you've got to go. Verse 18. And when he got in the boat, he who had been demon-possessed and begged him that he, that he might be with him, begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said, said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. There was real change going on here. This man had really changed. Not the same man at all anymore. And he did what everybody wants to do. Um, I've, I've been in church probably longer than several of you have been alive. <laughs> Thank you. I don't have much time left. I go to work. <laughs> Tomorrow is Terry's. I mean, fifty. <laughs> so we're going to sing happy birthday real quick. Gonna get it on the podcast and everything, but that's ready? great. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Terry. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you. The point I was gonna make, other than uh, that I'm old was if you've been in church a while, you see people that get saved, and boy, they get on fire, don't they? Sometimes you get to feeling guilty, but why should be like that? And they just want to cling to Jesus. They want to find somebody that, that they perceive as very spiritual, and they want to hang around them, and they want to get all they can. But they don't always stay. Some of those people end up disappearing. This guy did the same thing. He, he wanted to cling to Jesus. He says, I want to... I want to stay with you. I want to go where you go. What Jesus didn't say was, okay, here's what you need to do. You want to be a good servant? He said, I want you to go to Bible school. I want you to go to a good seminary. I want you to study all there is to, so that you know everything there is to know about life and about God. And then you can serve me. He didn't say, I want you to join a good church. Make sure you read the Bible every day, you pray every day, you spend a lot of time, and, and when you start to get the answers down, then you can serve. He gave the same answer. Jesus gave the same answer that he gives every one of us when we get saved. Mark 16, 15. You go and you tell. I think I put that in the notes. Um, he said, Mark 16, 15. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. It's exactly what he said in verse 19. You go and tell. Go and tell people. 
The amazing thing is, unlike some of us, he did it. <laughs> he started telling everybody. Even more amazing, they responded. They did. Now, granted, this man had, had, had an easy excuse to be able to tell. Because he walks into a town, and they'll take one look at him and say, Man, what happened to you? And he just smiles and say, Let me tell you. It was Jesus. What all does that have to do with us? Talk about the application. About a week and a half ago, um, I was reading in a book we're doing in, in my small group. We're reading uh, Crazy Love. And Francis Chan made this, this statement that has just... I've struggled with for the last two weeks. And the statement is, God did not call us to be comfortable. And, and he's right. And that's hard. Change is going to take you completely out of, of that comfort zone. And we don't like it. So application number one, God didn't call us to be comfortable. Second point of this message, there's no one out of the reach of Jesus. I don't know how many times I've prayed and then stopped thinking, God just can't reach my mother. And y'all, most of you heard my story. She can't be reached. But man, if these demoniacs could be reached, these, the, the, men's, the men that lived in these tombs, Matthew says there was two of them, by the way, if you get confused about that. And you can read the notes to talk about that. But if he can reach them, he can reach my mom, your mother, your father, family, your neighbors, people you work with. No one is out of the reach of Jesus. And third, Jesus still saves the living from wrong the dead. And I'm grateful for that. So what am I supposed to do about that? How does that affect me? How does that impact me? No matter where your comfort zone is, Every one of us is different. What is comfortable for me may make you feel uneasy, but we all have our comfort zone. You need to get out of it. You've got to get out of it. God didn't call us to be comfortable. Um, three times I've done the Bible study for um, 40 Days of Purpose. First thing you learn in there, this life isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about God. He saved us. He saved you. He saved me for a purpose. What's that purpose? And usually, always, excuse me, always, it's going to take you getting out of your comfort zone to do it. Everyone has a similar story. Share it. No, my story's not like his. I didn't live in any tombs. doesn't matter. We were all dead and made alive. We're all blind and see. We're all lost and we're found. It doesn't matter what your story is. It's very similar. Just some of the details are different. We need to share it. We let somebody know. Third, do you see a need today? Where? Where do you see that need? Because it's all around us. You need to do it. This church 
that we're a part of. I've been in, in several churches over the years. And this has the largest percentage of people that fall right here, that will do it, that will step up. This is a great church that we're in. But as many people as we have in larger percentages that are working, there's constantly need. Where do you see a need? Can you meet a need somewhere? Because from, from the babies to the little kids to the wannas to the youth to the singles to all that's going on in our class and, and, and through these age groups to the ball club to people in nursing homes that are members of our church, there are needs. The question is, will you do it? To quote <clears throat> the immortal words, a Bluto from Animal House. Let's do it!